0: just hearing uh, how these passages flow. So starting with verse 1, My son, if you become surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands and a pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. You've come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Verse 6, Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard, when you rise from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep? So shall your poverty come upon you like a prowler and your need like an armed man? let's open in prayer. Father, we are so grateful to be here tonight, uh, the middle of the week, uh, just a time for you to wash our feet uh, with your word and just a time to come together and just lay aside uh, the cares of the day, but uh, just to be strengthened and encouraged by the wisdom of your word. I pray, Lord, that even in this passage, which uh, may on the surface not seem to apply to maybe something that someone is currently dealing with, Lord, I pray that yet, As only the Holy Spirit can do, you administer the word in such a way that even every person here is fed, comforted, convicted, whatever the need may be by this text, Uh, for Lord, you can speak through any passage of your word. We know it never returns void, and we pray, Lord, that you would just anoint this time. Uh, Use me, uh, and may you uh, you and you alone be the voice that is heard here tonight. Thank you for this time, and we look forward to what you will do in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, two of the biggest character flaws, and certainly not the only character flaws, but two of the biggest character flaws in our society today are living by impulse. Would you agree with that? People just impulse do whatever it is that comes into mind and not give it a whole lot of thought. Living by impulse or living in laziness. And of course, we have many other issues, but these are two that are very prevalent. And personally, I can speak for me, but I'm pretty sure I can speak for all of you as well. We've all been guilty in both of these areas at one time or another, right? Perhaps this month, perhaps sometimes today, this summer. So we, uh, as flawed human beings, we've been guilty of these as well. Now, these, of course, as far as a daily pattern of your life or a consistent habit of your life. They're not new traps to fall into. Uh, If they were, Solomon wouldn't have been writing about them 3,000 years ago. But I do believe that our generations, they can become more... These issues of impulse or uh, laziness, they can become more pervasive over time. Would you agree with that? That over time, these can become normative behaviors. Uh, I don't think that... uh, People lived as much as impulse by impulse in the United States even 50 years ago. And if they're not addressed, uh, then they will continue to rise as, as issues that all of society will deal with. And when you look at the fact that they're not really taught because in the same way, they're not taught to the same level, uh, you look at the breakdown in the family in the United States, particularly the last 30 years or so. You look at the breakdowns in our government and the removal of God from just about every vestige, whether it be education, whether it be the town square, whether it be the federal government, all of these things that are removing the wisdom of God, our schools. So you then have to wonder who's really teaching and instructing these things to the younger generation today, to the young people. Who's teaching them not to live by impulse and not to be lazy, but to actually develop a work ethic. Now, the church and the body of Christ also suffers in these areas. Would you agree with that? And it's the church that must give the biblical instruction, which is why we go verse by verse through the Word. We don't want to miss anything God wants us to to know, which is exactly what we're doing here tonight. But we can't You and I, we can't teach others unless we're applying it ourselves. And that's what I hope that uh, as we go through chapter 6 and all the way through Proverbs, we continue to look at these things and assess in our own life say, Lord, how do I apply this better? Because all of us can grow in these areas. All of us can be uh, more careful to listen to the voice of the Spirit than our own flesh. All of us can be more consistent uh, in our effort. If you're taking notes tonight, you can see... Uh, the title of tonight's time and the word, Careful Consideration and Consistent Effort, just kind of bridging the gap between these two texts. And the first thing we want to look at is verses uh, 1 through 5, uh, what I've titled, Pray and Wait. Pray and Wait. These five verses, uh, they have direct implication for making wise uh, business decisions, legal decisions, and ensuring that uh, if you look at these five verses uh, together, that you're not bound by contract terms that cause headaches and difficulty. Now that's the, whenever you look at Scripture, uh, the first meaning of any Scripture is the plain text meaning. And then you can see other meaning that, that uh, is there as well. It can be symbolic. Uh, it can be a parallel to something in the New Testament church. But the first is the plain text meaning. The plain text meaning, uh, you know, Solomon is giving practical advice here. Uh, Proverbs is a practical book. Uh, Solomon was a very wise man. People came to him for all types of advice, including business advice, contract advice, all types of questions that were related to normal everyday living, but actually spiritual things as well. And, and the reality is, everything normal day living has a spiritual touch point anyway, but uh, the book is practical, so it's great advice for making wise commitments. I used to work myself uh, before I went into ministry. I worked with contracts and negotiations. And you always took your time uh, with things that would be bound by ink and signatures. This is true in our personal life, too. You know, you, your, your hand shakes the first mortgage you ever signed. Remember? What happens? This is 30 years, Right? Did we get the right interest rate? First car loan, especially if you have to buy one for one of your kids. My daughter turned 16 yesterday, so I'm already thinking about that kind of stuff. But the wider implication here, the wider implication uh, other than just the plain text, hey, uh, be careful to contracts you sign and agreements you make, the wider implication here is impulse versus thoughtful. Sensible decision, and for us as New Testament believers, not just thoughtful and sensible, but prayerful. That when we make decisions, we stop and pray about it. And we say, "Lord, what would you have me to do here?" It might seem like a very simple decision, but we have to kind of weigh it. Say, "Lord, what is what is your direction here?" And some things we seem to we. we If they're really big things like, hey, we're thinking about selling our house, we're moving here. You want people to pray with us? But we really need to think and talk to God about all the decisions we make. Now the key verse here is verse two. It says, uh, You are snared by the words of your mouth, and you're taken by the words of your mouth. This is the classic speak first, think later. Much less pray, there's not even much in the way of critical or strategic thinking. Now, this is worse than putting your foot in your mouth, which we can do that kind of speaking first, think later as well. Uh, When we put our foot in our mouth, it's usually saying something we didn't mean, getting our words fumbled or whatever it may be. But this is saying what we mean without considering the ramifications of it. Does that make sense? This is saying, I mean to say yes, I will step in and help with this situation. I uh, I will sign my name on the dotted line without thinking through what are the implications of that. We find the same mindset today with things like, buy now, figure it out, how we'll pay for it later. Right? There's a lot of that. Uh, and, you know, we have advertising that bombards people, just go ahead and buy it, 0% financing. I think, uh, how many have you seen uh, a lot of Hanes commercials on the time you've been living in Richmond? So I think they have like a 20-year, zero interest, uh, bigger sale last week than this week or whatever. Uh, but those kind of things, sorry, Hanes, if you work for Hanes, I'm sorry, they do great advertisement. It's caught my attention. But, um, but by now, we'll figure it out later. Or uh, how about this one? and this can happen even, even among believers, date this person anyway, it'll all work out. Date them anyway, yes, I see some red flags. My parents have said I would stay away from that relationship. My pastor said this, so and I, but you know, I just think it, it'll all work out. Or take the new job offer. Uh, after all, it's a better paycheck. We know there's more criteria that should go into thinking uh, than just one thing. Quick decisions or agreements, or quick decisions or agreements, they can have really long consequences, can't they? Quick decision, make an agreement with somebody over something, these can have long lasting impact. Making promises based on emotion, making promises based on guilt. You think about the things that people make promise on, emotions, guilt, making promises to impress people. Now, this is really, uh, younger people have, I think, more of an issue with this. Uh, we see a lot of peer pressure. Uh, they'll make promises to do something. Um, you know, Kids will get into a lot of trouble saying, are you in? That's a simple question. Making promises to get someone's approval. They're all bad reasons for saying, yes, I'm in. I'll do whatever you need. Especially in cases where we can't even deliver what we've said, right? We may not have the time. We may not have the money. We may not have the ability, you know, be careful uh, to say what you can do when you really can't do it things that we promise. Let's go back to verse 1 here. My son, if you become surety for your friend, the first thing he mentions here is friend, something you'd do, something you'd say, hey, I'll cover for you, friend. I got your back. Ah, the things people will do for their friends, which sometimes friends aren't always such good friends if they get you in jams, right? If you were born in the 60s or 70s, uh, I was born in 69, maybe earlier, uh, but I don't know because I didn't live earlier than that. So some of you live earlier, you can tell me. I don't hear this much anymore, but uh, you'd hear a lot when I was growing up this phrase Well, if your friend walked off a cliff, would you walk off a cliff? I hardly ever hear my... It's just, it's just not a, uh, a 2014 thing to say, but raise your hand if you ever got that statement when you were... Yeah, So I'm not alone. A lot of you got that one. Heard it often. I must have done enough things to hear that phrase often. <laughs> I don't know if I was the one leading off a cliff or following off a cliff, but either way. And for a friend, many young people would go ahead and walk off the cliff, Right? We see it all the time. That's not new. That's been happening for a long time. Not really even thinking about what would happen because it's called groupthink, group mentality, peer pressure, rather than being personally led by the Lord. This is the thing. You know, our young people left uh, to go to the youth group, and I have two teenagers, and, and many of you parents also have teens. And the thing we have to instill in them is they have to have a personal walk with God. They have to have a personal belief that uh, when everyone else is saying things, they have to be able to say, that doesn't matter what everyone else is saying. This is what God is saying. That They're not led by groupthink. They're not led by what everyone else says is on their iPhone. By the way, good and godly friends, they won't put you in these difficult situations, at least for the most part. We all would make mistakes. But even if a good or godly friend puts you in a really difficult situation, it would usually be to extraordinary circumstances that kind of fell in their lap, and they're reaching out for real help. And it would be prayerfully approached by everyone to say, hey, we have a, 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 an unusual financial bind. You know, we don't have the health insurance to cover, we need people to help us. And Everybody would prayerfully consider. I think that there's really worthy... Uh, times where you do something that you would normally not do—that's where the body of Christ uh, really does have to come in. We've been to give, and I think the last check we had, close to nine thousand dollars, was sent down there. Now we didn't sign any dotted line, but we made commitments that were real, and God honored them. But I think that verse one—if you look at verse one—he doesn't just say "friend." Here he says, in, ver- in the second half of the verse, "If you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger." I think verse 1 can cover a range of friendship relationships. We all have some friends that we're closer with than other friends, but we'd still consider friends. When I see someone on Facebook, by the way, that says they have 1,000 friends, I do not believe they have 1,000 friends, by the way. Very few people have... I've seen way more than that. 2,000 friends, 3,000 friends, or whatever. Can I hear 5,000 friends, or whatever? But we only have a handful of friends. But sometimes people meet a stranger and they want to be their friend. And that can get you in trouble too. You meet someone brand new, you want to get to know people a little bit. And Solomon's warning to that. He say, hey, just because you meet someone and they seem really cool. Remember the prodigal son? He was the coolest guy in town when he first got there, wasn't he? He's buying drinks for everybody. You need a co-signer, I can, I can do that. All the stuff, but then when it all dried up, He didn't have any friends. and So Solomon would kind of have a window's eye to that as well. But it can cover a wide range of friendships or even someone you just met. But I think Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians uh, can also fit here. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits that the friends you hang out with, people that we make in in our relationships, will can to either cause you to live by the same impulse they live by or, if you have godly friends, they'll, you'll live by the same restraint they live by. So you want to have people that are in your life uh, that are measured, that listen to the Lord, that take a cautious approach to things, uh, but again, uh, they're willing to take steps of faith. I'm not saying that we, we don't step out of the boat and take steps of faith, but we're wise because we've prayed through them And we're making the decisions based on spiritual reasons, not emotional, or I really want to impress this person, or I must have this car. Because the salesman told me, if I don't sign tonight, it won't be here tomorrow. I love Pastor Chuck. How many of you listened to Chuck over the years and the word for today? Chuck Chuck said he used to get salespeople so mad. Because no matter what it was, he said, I'm going to go home. I'm going to pray about it for 24 hours, and if the Lord gives me a piece, I will come back and buy it. They would get so mad and say, it ain't going to be here when you get back. And Chuck said that I was not meant to have it. <laughs> that would fire them up even more. But it is a good rule of thumb to, to say, I, I, I'm going to pray about this. You know, that, that, that great deal, no matter, the best are like the ones from Home Depot, and it, it's only available on 4th of July until... Memor- until Labor Day, or, or, or then Veterans' Day, or the, you know every single holiday, I get the same inserts. take a measured approach, not by impulse. Now, this general context, though, is that when dealing with people and friends or people that you're connected with in some way, just be very careful. If you look at the rest of the passage, the promises you make. Verse 2, as we mentioned already, you're snared by the words of your mouth. And in verse 3, it says, So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Boy, it takes humility to say, I made a really bad impulse decision here. And this can happen in a marriage relationship. It can happen over really stupid, silly arguments. Right? happen over big, important things, but to go humble yourself and say, can I have a redo? And a lot of times, you can get a redo if this hasn't gone too far down rip, downstream. And what Solomon is saying here is, when possible, go and make amends to promises or impulse decisions or commitments that you know or you won't keep, can't keep or know you won't keep. And say, hey, I know I said such and so, but that's gotten me in a bind. The reality is I shouldn't have said that. It was an impulse decision. Can we rediscuss this? Now, it's hard when you've actually signed real paperwork with a department store or something like that, but with people, especially hopefully us in the body of Christ, love covers a multitude of sins, we should be able to go back to one another and say, hey, you know what I said yesterday? I said, if you." this is one thing I do not like to say. I hear people say it all the time. Hey, if you need anything, just let me know. Anything? I got some anythings. If you mean that statement, if you say to me, you need anything, let me know. Okay. You got a checkbook available? (laughs) Because I can give you a few things. So, you know, our words should mean something. We don't just kind of say, "Hey, hey, I heard that you have a need... You call me any time this weekend. Really? Do you intend to stop whatever you're doing? So we have to be careful that we really mean what we say. And some people will take you up on it. And that's not necessarily uh, wrong on their part. But when we can, we need to go back and and make, uh, make these things right. He says, don't even give sleep until you've resolved this. If you've put yourself in a really bad position... You know, you've seen movies or you've heard stories about, the, you know, like the son that's, oh, I saw it on your car and dad said, you go right back to the dealership right now. You've got three days to give that car back because there's a law that you can give back. You better go give it back right now. As you know and I know, you will not be able to make the payments anytime soon. So there are even with, uh, even with uh, things in the commercial realm, uh, if we made a bad decision, it'd be better to send it back. If we really can't afford it, send it back if we're kind of stuck with the terms. Uh, but with people, even if it's a friend, and, and you know, really with a friend, uh, if we if we said that we can help in an area, and they're counting on our help, but ra- really we're not going to be able to deliver it, and it's two or three weeks away. They need time to find who can help them. We've got to make those amends quickly. And the main thing is to really kind of walk in the Spirit so we're careful that, hey, we we want to have a, a an eye uh, to help people, uh, but at the same time, we're not just kind of making promises that we can't deliver on. And if you really allow things to fester, then it becomes more and more problematic if it's with relationships, for example. Now let's take a look at uh, verses 6 through 11. 6 through 11, where he moves away from this uh, uh, impulse um, problem that, uh, that could arise, and he moves to uh, work, those that would have the right work ethic, diligence. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Now, anyone has ever looked at an ant pile, ants are always doing something, aren't they? You go to a picnic, they go to work on your blanket, don't they, right? You drop something, they are on it. But isn't it is interesting that overcommitting and undercommitting are in succession here? The possibility to overcommit and then work or lack thereof, laziness, would be a significant undercommitting because God created us to work. You know, work was actually given before the curse. Adam and Eve were to tend the garden. Before there was ever any curse of sin, so work in and of itself is not the curse; it was the sweat of the brow, and then uh, you ladies who've had childbearing, you know that there's an entire realm of things that go with childbearing, which is hard work on the body, and men supposed to work with the brow, but of course, everyone has to work, both men and women to some degree. But it wasn't just the, it wasn't the work, it was the pain of it. There was no pain associated with original uh, work or service to God. And when we get to heaven, we're still going to serve the Lord, which is kind of a form of work, if you will, and that won't be painful either. It will be pleasant. So work in and of itself was not the curse. It was all the things, the thorns, the briars, the difficulty in childbearing, all those other things that came that was the curse. But in both cases, when you think about overcommitting saying things you shouldn't have said for any number of reasons or impulse, you think about undercommitting, it comes down to motive, doesn't it? The motive of the heart is why we say something or commit to something or refuse to do something. Motives. A prayerful and sincere person will wisely make commitments and their work ethic will help them make commitments that others can't make. Does that make sense? A prayerful person, spiritual, walking with the Lord, will wisely, I'll say that again, they'll wisely make commitments, and then their work ethic will help them make other commitments that other people can't make. This applies to career or or vocation. It applies to our personal life and time. We all complain about not having enough time just as Americans, almost everybody does. Um, I have to be careful about it because Jesus, if he comes and really inspects our time, I think we'd stop complaining. I did find some areas where you have time. But nevertheless, work, as it relates to our career, vacation, our personal time, it applies to our spiritual life. It applies to our home and family life. It applies to the ministry of the church, right? All of these areas are going to take a certain level of work, work ethic, commitment. I'll never forget in my, uh, when I was in college down in Miami, and I was, um, I was still, I wasn't saved at, the, at that time. I was still bartending my uh, way through school, but I was complaining about all the things I had in the air anyone else ever complained about all the things you have in the air? If I was complaining about it when I was in my early 20s, imagine what I found out later, (laughs) right? But nevertheless, because I had an internship going, I had a full load of classes, I had a a 35-hour work week or something with with a full course load and an internship, and then my employer asked me to take on a little, little extra responsibility. I was complaining about the balance of it all, and while I was whining about it, I had a successful businessman that came in every day, and he said to me to the, to the, something I haven't forgotten to this day, and you've heard me say it before if you go here. Uh, he said, if you want something done, ask a busy man. And it stuck in my head. Now, not everything you hear in life comes from a Christian that sticks in your head. I, that still stuck with me. If you want something done, ask a busy man. And I have found that in my 47 years to be very true. You don't, you don't bother asking a person who doesn't have a strong work ethic. Why? You either know it won't be done or it won't be done right. Right? won't be done at all or it won't be done right. So you turn to people who you know say, I am in a pinch. This person will get it done. And we, and we, and we look to people like that. From time to time, I quote Hebrews 5.12, Um where it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. See, the spiritual here as well. If we are serving, if we are working for the Lord, if we are maturing, well, we can assist and minister in new ways because we have exercised spiritual muscle, which allows us to help in other areas. From a spiritual perspective, the person who has followed The words of Jesus, and you know them well, what were the words of Jesus? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. For the person that follows these words and takes them to heart and truly seeks first the kingdom of God, which will take some real diligence and will take some effort, it's not easy to seek first the kingdom of God. It is not easy. If anyone tells you it's easy, they've never done it. But not only will the person who seeks first the kingdom of God, not only will they work hard, but they'll work on the right things and they'll learn the right priorities within the right things. Does that make sense? And it doesn't happen overnight. You get more and more mature in this. It's it's stewardship of what God has given. Say, hey, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. And you find wasted motion in your life. You find things that just are... Uh, just kind of aimless. They don't help you accomplish much from a spiritual perspective or any other uh, thing for that matter. Now, that doesn't mean you'll be perfect in all these things. None of us are. But you will be consistent in them. Consistent is different than perfect, right? The best baseball players are not perfect. They are consistent at hitting the ball. The best pitchers are not perfect. They are consistent and throwing strikes. They don't throw all strike, they throw plenty of foul uh, they throw plenty of uh, balls as well. But there's a consistency. And from a spiritual perspective, we want to understand this as well. Now not only will this person have a strong work ethic, the right priorities and the eternally minded motives. That's what our motives need to be. They need to be internally not internally, eternally, eternally minded. But because they are spiritually minded, the person that has this strong work ethic, and they're in harmony with God's instructions, guess what? Because they're eternally minded, because they're spiritually minded, because they're in harmony with God's instructions, this person will end up with more time more resources and more opportunities to help and have an impact for the kingdom of God. One hundred out of one hundred times, this will be a fact. God's promises never fail. Do you believe that? You say I'm going to work first, the kingdom of God, and then God's going. I'm going to put God first, and and then I want to have a consistent work ethic first and foremost for Him, and then He'll start to cascade the work priorities, the diligent areas of our life. This person won't be making emotional promises or commitments, will not be overpromising or acting on impulse, but equally, even though they won't over-promise, and, and I'm not saying they n- never will do that, but I'm saying on a consistent basis they won't do that, but equally, they won't be the person that every single time you speak to them says, I can't help. Sorry. I don't have the time. I don't have the ability. We don't have any money. See, work ethic, it has a spiritual, it has a physical, and it has a practical outworking on our life. Some people have tremendous work ethic in everything but the spiritual. Wouldn't you agree with that? You've met people that, that work nonstop. Some people are very proud to tell you, I haven't taken a day off in five years. I work seven days a week and I've got $8 million in the bank to show for it. Right? Well, that's fool's gold. Scripturally, it's called selfish ambition. But sometimes we might refer to this person as a workaholic. They're often the most successful people based on the measurements of money and titles or popularity. And the world looks up to them. So clearly this can't be the kind of work God is talking about. Because God says, six days, I'll have you work. And he even said, one day a week, I want you to rest so the person that says, "I work every day and I never take any day off," well, they're already in opposition to God saying, "You need to rest." Now God hasn't had to convince me this anymore. I actually know I need to right? I went up for a vacation. I needed one. I really did. Like physically, all kinds of ways, I knew I needed to rest. Some of the one of the most spiritual things you can do sometimes is rest. Sometimes you need to rest. And you need God to show you when, especially if you have kind of different hours and you, you can't have a Sunday Sabbath, uh, you can't have a, maybe your oddball hours, whether it's medical or retail or whatever else, or fire department, police department. But you need God's wisdom to say, Lord, when should I rest? You should rest. Workaholics is not who God is looking for us to be. People storing up, you know, bigger barns and bigger barns only to say, you fool, tonight your soul's required. That certainly isn't what God is asking for. But yet he wants us to have a work ethic, a strong work ethic, hardworking, but not be the person that every time you need, hey, we could really use your help. Say, I can't help. Don't have the time, ability, money, whatever else. But God's not impressed by people that just work hard if they ignore him in their work. You cannot be just a hard worker but ignore God. If we're going to work hard, we work hard with and under the Lord, not outside of the Lord. Well, then you have have these hardworking folks that may be strong believers or may be unbelievers. But work ethic may be strong in both cases. But then you have the lazy. And, of course, there's different levels of lazy, Right? Because all of us in this room are to some degree lazy. Even the hardest working people you meet have a lazy area in their life, believe it or not. They probably won't tell you because that would ruin the veil of perfection. But everybody has an area where they're probably lazy. And it's just maybe one spot for someone and it's different for someone else. You have these different levels of lazy and we're all guilty at times. But some are far lazier than others. I mean, even uh, in a a given family, uh, moms and dads, you might assess your kids. You might find one that will never take a minute off, but one has no problem taking time off. Right? It doesn't mean that one flaw is better than another because we all have them. That's why we kind of coach everybody up to common standards. But some people, they'll do just enough to get by. Just enough to get by. Other than that, not lifting the proverbial finger. I saw a quote earlier this year. I thought it was a great quote. It says, if you're only doing what you're paid to do, don't expect to get paid more. Men and women, if if you're the provider for your house, if you really want to be given more responsibility, better pay, you always have to do more than you're paid for. Always. This should be true of a pastor This should be true of someone in the home. This should be true of a banker, doctor. Always do more than you're getting paid for. And then people will say, you, we got to give you more because we couldn't get by without you. That's what you really want your employer to say. Now, some will do a little bit more but not much more. Just a little bit more. But again... It doesn't always pay off because people can see that as well. And then some people won't do anything. There really are people that are lazy. You know, I'm not pointing fingers. That just God knows who they are. There's people that really are lazy. Not that they have a lazy area, but just generally they have just to the point where they've just come into the point where they're just lazy in all kinds of facets. Now, not everyone who f- refuses to work is poor, believe it or not. Some people are lazy and they're rich. That really gets on our nerves, right? Like, you watch these reality TV shows when they're born into a rich family? I still don't know who the Kardashians are. I just know they have a name. You know, I'm sorry, I'm not saying they're lazy. I don't know anything about them. But you you find people that are born in. Uh, to money, they might be born into a Saudi oil family. They might be born into, you know, some uh, rich family that's been wealthy in the Hamptons for 200 years in, in the United States history, and, and they've never done anything. And there's even been movies made about this. That the fourth, they say that you know, when a, when a, when one gentleman starts a company, by the fourth generation, the work ethic is significantly different. That happens a lot of times. So, you can be lazy and still be rich, depending on many different circumstances. Of course, others are poor and even penniless. And this is what Solomon warns of here. He says in verse 11, so, shall poverty come upon you? But laziness is a serious issue to God. I want, let's look for just a second at the worst case scenario in Matthew chapter 25. I've mentioned it before, but it, it's uh, worth looking at again. Matthew chapter 25, this is the worst-case scenario for laziness, the absolute worst-case scenario, because this would be a picture of Judgment Day and God speaking to a person who's been entrusted with the things of God, but yet they were very lazy with them. Look at what Jesus says in um, verse 25 of Matthew 25. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground, Look, you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. I've asked the question before, when Jesus comes back, is he, is he going to return and get interest out of your life and mine? Will he be getting interest? Because he is looking, when he comes back, he saved me at 1995 and says, I want to see ROI on your life, return on investment. Say, Well, that seems awful. I didn't make, he's the one that gave the analogy. He wants to see interest on our life. Now, we're not earning salvation that way. But if we're saved, we're motivated. Remember back to motive. We have eternal motives, and which causes us to work unto the Lord. So the worst-case scenario is for Jesus to someday say to a person, you were lazy. Depart from me. I don't know you. That's the worst of all possible scenarios. Spiritual laziness, then, carries the greatest of all risk. It's greater than just Vocational laziness, career laziness, not cleaning the house, or whatever it may be. It's not, but spiritual laziness is the biggest problem. Because if that's cleaned up, everything else will follow. The person who is spiritually diligent and committed to Christ will not be a perpetually lazy person in the rest of their life. They'll have areas that take, uh, we do not, God does not fix up our mess lives overnight. Aren't you glad of that? Because you already would have been condemned a long time ago. But he knows some of your habits that you know, I know, we wish were gone 15 years ago, we still have some of them, right? But we can look back, like the hands on the clock, like, um, what was it? Um, I forgot his name. But anyway, um, wrote Amazing Grace. But he talked about it. He goes, I'm not what I once was. Right? John Newton, that's it. John Newton. So he talked about the fact that I'm nowhere near what I once was. And so God wants to take us and say, this is what you were when you came to me, and this is the transformation. But if spiritually we make that seek first the kingdom of God and we are diligent to seek first the kingdom of God, God will make us more and more diligent in all the other areas of our life that matter. We will do better work at work. We will do better work in the home. We will be more useful to the body of Christ and to the greater family of body believers, whether it's here, whatever church. So the person that is spiritually diligent will not be perpetually lazy. They'll have a bad day. You'll have a bad hour. You'll have a bad moment. But on a consistent basis, you'll be diligent. You'll be a hard worker. Your work ethic will get better over time. And as I've already mentioned, plenty of unsaved people work very hard. They just don't work for God. And for the most part, people that work work really hard, especially in the United States where it's a free country and you have every opportunity in the world, you can truly be president if you really want to aim for it. For the most part, people that work hard in this country will have their earthly needs met. For the most part, there are exceptions to this. There are difficulties. There are circumstances that defy any rule. But for the most part, they'll have their earthly needs met. They won't probably live in poverty. But all forms of laziness, they come with a cost. And Solomon uses this hard-working, tiny insect to illustrate how we should work to use our time, how we should work to use our gifts, how we should work to use our abilities that we've been trusted with. Ants are amazing, aren't they? And I would add annoying. Um, uh, if they decide to live in your house, they are not amazing at that point. You are finding, trying to find amazing ways to kill them if they live in your house, but they are amazing. You prefer that they do their amazing work out in the yard. Find their place. I tell my daughters, any insect is free to do whatever it wants out in the yard it comes in the house, it will be exterminated. I don't care what kind of insect it is. I don't care if it's a cute ladybug, if it's a cricket, if it's an ant. House flies, I will not go to bed until they are dead. But if they want to do their amazing work out in the yard, have at it. But ants are uh, amazing. And um, they're one of the strongest creatures on earth relative to their size. Uh, The average ant can carry 50 times their own body weight. Don't you wish you could carry 50 times your own body weight? That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? We'd be superhero-ish in that case. (laughs) Some ants can carry 100 times their own body weight and crawl upside down on glass. We don't understand how they even stay kind of suctioned to it, carrying 100 times their own body weight. God gives them just to show us that he can do these amazing things. They're highly skilled. They're very efficient in teamwork. Don't you wish we were always efficient in teamwork? Don't you wish your family was always efficient in teamwork instead of actually fighting? No, you were supposed to pick it up. No, you were supposed to pick it up. Ants don't say that. They never say to each other, you were supposed to pick it up. At least not that I can tell. They work tirelessly both individually and as teams, they kind of, you'll see ants work together to grab the potato chip. You'll also see them do something all by themselves. And as a connected colony, if their nest or their colony is destroyed or damaged, and as boys, we had a lot of fun destroying a lot of ant things, and just watching them, they immediately go to work on rebuilding that thing, don't they? They're running around like, like you don't know what they're doing, but they're communicating. Imagine if the body of Christ worked like this. Every time there was some damage, the whole body of Christ came together and worked like that. Every time there was some damage done, came together like that. Ants move about 50 tons of soil per year in one square mile. 50 tons. That's not just one ant colony. It's just the, however many ant colonies that are in a square mile. By the way, all the ants in the world combined weigh as much as all the people in the world combined. A lot of ants out there. But they defy what looks possible, don't they? Isn't that a cool spiritual term? They defy what looks possible, that God would have us defy what looks possible. And as we come to a close, I just want you to notice the two characteristics Solomon points out about the ant and its work habits. He says two things in verse 7 and 8. First, he says, they have no captain, overseer, or ruler. I mean, they have a queen that just does the producing of of more ants. I didn't know how long ants, some ants live 30 years. Did you know that? I didn't know that until I, you know, you get to preach, you study things that no one else studies. So anyway, (laughs) except for biologists or something like that. But anyway, Um, but he points out two habits. One, they have no overseer or captain. What does this mean to us? They are internally motivated. They work hard when nobody's watching. When I was in the business world, I never hardly saw my boss. One time my boss was in Dallas, another time he was in D.C. I hardly ever saw him. And we were kind of, we had MBOs, managed by objective. You guys know that term, some of you. And uh, if you weren't a self-starter, you wouldn't survive because there was no one to make you do what you were supposed to do. Well, in the body of Christ, Jesus wants a lot of the body to be able to work when there's no one seeing what you're doing. To just do the right thing and to do it led by the Holy Spirit and for the right motives and for the right reasons. The second thing, he says, uh, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. Ants, they work for the future and they reap the rewards later. They work for the future and they reap the rewards uh, later, We have to plant seeds today, brother and sister, and we see them grow tomorrow. You know that the work that God's been doing in this church in 2016, a lot of those seeds were planted like three or four years ago. Did you know the plant seeds we're planting right now? We will not see some of the fruit of that till three or four years from now. Do you know this summer when we did uh, VBS, Guatemala trip, and the, the, the outreach night for the uh, back-to-school night, do you know that those things... Some of them will not bear real fruit until 2017, 2018, 2019. Somebody that came by that at right then is not really ready to come to Christ, but they will remember, and three years from now, they'll walk through these doors and get saved on a Sunday morning. Say, when was the last time you came? Three summers ago, but I couldn't get it out of my mind, whatever someone said to me. You plant seeds. And by the way, in, in, we got Sam Nadler coming. He's going to share with us... Um, uh, Sunday the 24th. and Yom Kippur. I asked him to share him Yom Kippur. I've never heard him teach at least at our church, Yom Kippur. But all the, the Jewish feasts are in the spring and they're in the fall. In the summer you work to get what ready for what? Harvest. And that's what the ants do. They work hard in the summer to get ready for the harvest and we have to work hard because fall is coming and harvest is coming and Jesus is coming. Notice the warning. He says, how long will you slumber, verse 9, O sluggard, when will you rise from your sleep? You know, Paul writes the same thing in Romans 13, 11. He says, and do this knowing the time that now it's high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than we first believed. We need to wake out of sleep. Laziness, it has a personal impact, has a family impact, has a society impact. The impact of laziness shows up quickly in some ways, but sometimes it doesn't show up for quite some time. But it will always eventually show up, and the effects will always be harmful. Uh, Last couple things I want to say, just kind of my observation of society today. Today, when I look at the young men, I, I have never seen a more demotivated group of young men than we have right now in our society today. I observe young people. I watch high school-age guys, college-age guys. It's not just me as a pastor observing. Do you realize unsaved writers? I read an a, a article in the Wall Street Journal like four years ago, and it was observing. It says what was basically the article. I don't remember the title. It was basically what's happening to our young men. And it was the fact that women are outpacing them in college universities. They're going to college more. They're getting way better grades. They actually are having much more motivation and at the same time, you know, I, I kind of make fun of the man bun generation and uh, the, um, uh, the millennials and the fact that, you know, the studies, their handshake is weaker and all this other stuff. Well, who taught them to do nothing? Who was the one that said, you know, when I was young, you had to cut the grass? You had to do certain things. Someone was there to push you to say, hey, and to also encourage and build you up. But here's the problem 30, 40 years ago, Work ethic was strong, but men, even our grandfathers, if they didn't know Jesus, work ethic wasn't enough. That's why the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi, says God will turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Why? Because work ethic will never lift a society in and of itself. It has to be work ethic with a godly spiritual teaching. So it doesn't matter if the greatest generation of World War II guys were incredibly hardworking If all they passed on to their sons was work ethic, and it diluted down the line, it was just work ethic, work ethic, work ethic, but there was no working unto God, it eventually seems pointless to the time you get to four generations later. They're like, I'm not wasting my time with all that. Working for some company for 40 years working in the mill for 40 years, doing this, that, or the other, and then other things break down, and we get into the rest of Chapter 6. It gets into sexual immorality. This article in the Wall Street Journal, written like four years ago, it went on to say that they had studied all these college-age guys that were actually just in class, while they should have been in class, were on PlayStation and Xbox, and actually were drinking at like 2 in the afternoon on a Tuesday while playing video games, While their girlfriends were at college in in the same class getting straight A's, the number one thing was the young guys were having all the benefits of marriage without being married. They had no motivation to work. It's like, because they hadn't been taught the moral reasons why to work, they hadn't been taught the godly reasons why to work. So, hey, I'm 20 some years old, there's an Xbox in front of me. I can party all weekend. I have my pick of six different girls that none of them are going to wait until they're married. I mean, this is a problem on both sides. And the rest of chapter six, we, well, not the rest of chapter six, starting verse 20, we'll get into more of the, uh, where Solomon starts to break down, where sexual sin breaks down in a country. But notice that they, it's all connected. And what it all, where it all kind of leads to is then when you have demotivated young men, there's a Latin proverb. Listen to this Latin proverb. It says, As worms breed in a pool of stagnant water, so evil thoughts breed in the mind of the idol. Just thousands of years ago. What happens when you have drugs and drinking and video game playing and kind of free sex and pornography? Because all you have is time on your hand. Do you know who has more time on their hands than any working class group of Americans? College kids. They, have a work, they, they, they act like they have no time on their hands. Oh, I'm taking three classes. I'm taking four classes. They actually have more time than anybody. And their parents sent them away saying, you don't have time to work a full-time job, so you just, study, you just work on your classwork, right? And then the rest of the time, you just will be studying, I'm sure of it. No, that's not what happens. But it doesn't end there. If you look in our society, eventually laziness gives way to no purpose. And when people have no purpose, and after a while, people start to exceed them, then you have anger and depression. And when you have anger and depression, then you have bigger problems than originally you started off with. And when you see the mass shootings in the, in the United States, they're almost always young men. Almost always young men between 19 and 25 years of age. Almost always. Always. They're the ones recruited to ISIS. They're the ones walking into theaters. They're the ones walking into schools. And because once they've lost purpose, they've already done the sex. They've already done the drugs. They've already done the video games. Now they have no purpose. And now they're mad at somebody else. And everyone then pays the price. And I know this is, that's heavy stuff, but it just, you know, God, remember how hard Jesus was on laziness in Matthew 25? It's the spiritual thing. He says, dads, if you do not train up a child in the way they should go, not just teach them to cut the grass, not just teach them how to run a skill saw, not just teach them how to do different things, and this is for daughters too, moms, you teach them the daughters, but if you don't teach them spiritually, it's going to be a waste in the long run because after a while, they won't teach anything spiritual, and it gets worse down the line as it goes. And so we see that spiritual laziness in the body of Christ, in the church, and in fathers and mothers, really catches up 20, 30, 40 years later. The things you're seeing in society right now were seeds that were sown 20, 30, 40 years ago. And now is the time for us to teach what can reverse these things. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you've you've put us in this world, uh, Lord, to glorify you and to magnify you, but to be salt and light. And Lord, we know that our young people today, whether it's living by impulse uh, or living just laziness or with no purpose, and not only certainly our young people, but uh, many that are older than that as well. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be those that present Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is the purpose for not only this life, but for all eternity. And, Lord, in this room, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to be careful and to be prayerful in decisions we make, but, Lord, also to be ready and available by being diligent and doing those things that you've asked us to do in seeking first the kingdom of God. Lord, that we would put our hand to the plow and work in this ministry and our homes and wherever we may be, Lord, Uh, That we would be awake and busy about your work. Not busy, bound under Satan's yoke, but busy that when you return, we're doing the things that you've asked us to do. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would hide this word in our heart, that we might not sin against you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.